Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning, Grace. We are in Nahum chapter 3 today. If you're visiting, we've been working our way through the book of Nahum to bring any visitors up to speed. Nahum was a prophet who prophesied in 7th century B.C. to give hope to the nation of Judah, but also to let them know that the city of Nineveh would be destroyed. If you're familiar with the book of Jonah, Jonah happened 100 plus years before Nahum. Jonah told Nineveh to repent or the Lord would wipe them out. They repented, but we find 100 plus years later they've returned to their wicked ways and now it's too late. And so Nahum brings this oracle of judgment to the capital city of Assyria, Nineveh. So Nahum chapter 3, we'll look at verses 1 through 7. Let's pray before we begin. Father, Thank you for your wonderful love. We, we are captivated by it this morning because we know the filth and the stench that is in our hearts because of our sin. And we are captivated by the perfect life of your son and his perfect death which satisfied your justice. We are captivated that he absorbed all of your wrath against sinners who turn and trust in you. And we are captivated by his resurrection and what that means for us as we walk in your ways. Help us this morning to see wonderful, life-changing, transforming truths out of Nahum 3 this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite memories from college involves a toilet. In our dorm room, myself and my roommate Jason lived on one side and Chase and Andrew lived on the other and we shared this adjoining bathroom. It made for easy college pranking to say the least, but there was something special about the toilet in our bathroom. It did not just flush, it flushed. You had to be careful that you did not get sucked down with it. It had so much force. And one of our sweetmates, Chase, was captivated and fascinated by this toilet. And he started testing the toilet's flushing capabilities. He started to test it to see what it could take down. So he would occasionally peek into our room and say, come here, guys, and watch this. And he would flush some trash down the toilet, a a Doritos bag, a Snickers wrapper, maybe some study notes that he had wadded up and thrown in there. And at first, it was very amusing, and we would laugh with Chase and marvel at our toilet's ability to take anything down. It seemed like it it couldn't refuse anything. It just took everything down. So Chase would always grab something and flush it down. This was his new trash can. And he kept doing it and doing it. So it was not uncommon to go into the bathroom and to see something floating in the toilet. Instead of using the trash can, Chase used his new trash can. After a while, though, we started to get annoyed. And we told Chase, sooner or later, this is going to backfire. 
In fact, one night we had to physically stop him from flushing a Dr. Pepper can down the toilet. Several weeks went by with everyone having to flush anything that Chase put in the toilet. You had to flush before you could flush. And then one day, one of our friends, Aaron, who lived downstairs in the dorm below us, came and knocked on my door. And I opened the door and he said, come here, there's something I want you guys to see. So we all walked downstairs to Aaron's dorm room, which was directly below ours. He led us to his bathroom and we saw where his toilet was that... All of the sewage lines above, our sewage lines, had broken through the ceiling, had burst forth, and were spewing all of its contents all over his toilet. There was silence. We did our best to play it off and give it that very guilty, that's odd, how did that happen? (laughs) I can't remember if we told Aaron or not. I think we did. We used to prank you know, both rooms all the time. I assumed that he thought we pulled a prank on him. But we go back to our room. The maintenance people had to come and rip out our toilet and rip up the flooring, inspect the pipes. And we were sitting there nervously in our rooms waiting to hear the verdict. We knew what was coming. And the maintenance man came out and said, does anyone know anything about this? And he was holding a styrofoam bowl. Chase had flushed a styrofoam bowl down the toilet, and it worked, at least for a little while. And then it created a perfect seal somewhere in the pipes, and the sewage started backing up until it was too late. The styrofoam bowl deep in the sewage lines was finally exposed. In fact, it exposed what was already hidden in the sewage lines, the sewage itself. The human heart is like that. And the city of Nineveh was just like this. They had been stuffing the things of the world down into their hearts. Even after Jonah had said, repent, they went back to their ways. And now their hearts have been exposed. The human heart is like that. Which is why our big idea today is this. There are sewage lines in every human heart. In every single human conceived on this planet and born into this world, they have sewage lines installed in their heart. That's what we'll see in the book of Nahum today. The citizens of Nineveh, like every human being on this planet, had sewage lines running through their hearts. The sin of Adam that happened in Genesis chapter 3 caused a city-wide or really a humanity-wide sewage system to be installed in the heart of every human being born on this planet. And the sewage that flows through every human heart is called sin. And the city of Nineveh was proof of that. In today's text, Nineveh's heart sewage lines will be exposed as Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, exposes the city's wickedness. But it's not just the wicked capital city of Assyria, Nineveh, that has sewage lines. Even the people of God living in Judah also had sewage lines in their hearts. That's why Robert Murray Machane said, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Look at verse 1 with me. 
Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel. Galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear. Hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Here in verses 1 and 4, Nahum rehearses the sins of the city of Nineveh. He exposes the sewage lines of every inhabitant in this city. He exposes the very sins which are causing Nineveh's downfall. They had shed blood. They had lied. They had plundered people, victimized others, precisely because they had sinned, because they had sewage lines running through their hearts. This was a part of them. This was who they are. This was their very heart. These sins characterized them. They didn't just occasionally dabble in these sins. This was their way of life. In fact, there's a sculptured wall relief that was found in Assyria in King Ashurbanipal's palace. It's a scene featuring the king and the queen celebrating victory over their enemies. And it's this picture of the king and queen sitting next to the banqueting table celebrating the defeat of another king. And that king's head is hanging in a fruit tree next to the table. This was the art that they enjoyed. The king of Elam's head hung in the fruit tree as they celebrated victory. They were bloodthirsty. Imagine some queen going into an art gallery and seeing this wall relief and saying, Ooh, I love it. I love how the artists put so much detail into King Elam's severed head. I don't care how much it costs. I want it. Have it delivered to my palace. I understand that some people struggle with the artwork of Pablo Picasso and other abstract artists, but these Assyrians had some pretty sick taste. This was carved in stone, which leads me to believe that this is how the Assyrians wanted to be remembered in the history books, as a bloodthirsty, gruesome people. Nahum also says that they lied constantly. They took things that belonged to others and victimized them. We saw that last week at the end of chapter 2 where Nahum describes them as lions who pounce on the prey. And they, they drug things and people back to their dens, if you will. Back to the dens of their hearts and feasted on those things and delighted in those things other than the living God. The Hebrew words here for plunder and prey suggest a forced ripping of a person or possessions. They, they came and they just took what they wanted when they conquered you. They, they pulled people away from their families. They were like wild beasts. They devoured their defenseless enemies. This was a far cry from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. This was Nineveh and this is how they lived. And so Nahum describes in verses 2 through 3 the attack of the Medes and the Babylonians, which would happen sometime in the future from Nahum when he was preaching. It happened in 612 B.C., we know from history. So Nahum describes in verses 2 through 3 how the Medes and the Babylonians would attack 
Nineveh. They ride on chariots, swords are drawn and slice through bodies, spears penetrate human flesh, whips crack, horses gallop, and chariots chase down their enemies. You have to put on your imagination cap or you have to see the chaos as people scream and run through the streets as the, as the Medes and the Babylonians start destroying Nineveh. Families try to stay together. Kids fall and get crushed under the horses and the chariots and there are dead bodies everywhere. So much so that the Medes and the Babylonians are tripping over bodies as they chase citizens of Nineveh who are trying to flee. It's utter chaos. People are screaming and they fall and then they're cut down by the sword. You've got to use your imagination as you read Nahum. You've got to see the bloodshed. You've got to hear people and children crying out in agony. You've got to hear the horses as they run and trample people. You've got to hear the crack of the whip. You've got to see the chariots trying to maneuver through the streets. You've got to see the blood flowing through the streets. You've got to imagine that you are a citizen of Nineveh. And the ladies who come to your house on Saturday afternoon to quilt blankets have now been cut down by the sword. It's pretty gruesome. It's pretty bloody. Why do you need to picture this? Because this is God's word and he wants us to see how sin affects people, how it courses through human veins like sewage and waste and he wants us to see how he responds to He did not have to inspire Nahum with these words. He did not have to inspire Nahum to be so vivid and graphic and poetic. He could have just said, Woe to you, Nineveh. You're dead. Goodbye. The end. But he didn't. Why? Why the horror and the very bloody, specific, graphic language? Why a detailed description of the destruction of an entire city? Because the horrors of sin and judgment serve to magnify and highlight the grace of God. The horrors of sin, the sin that courses through our veins, and God's righteous judgment on that sin serve to magnify and highlight the mercy and the grace of a holy God when He does forgive sinners who turn to Him. The spiritual condition of the wicked serves to point to the need for God's mercy. You are meant to stop and think. And those living in Judah, the people of God at this time, were meant to stop and think and say to themselves, apart from the grace of God, I am a citizen of Nineveh. Apart from the grace of God, I am the wicked Ninevite who is full of lies. Apart from the grace of God, I would pay the penalty for the sewage that is in my 
Don't try and cover these pages with bleach. Don't break out the disinfectant when you come to Nahum chapter 3. Don't put on hand sanitizer as you flip through the pages. Put the Febreze away. Don't try and bleep Nahum's words. Don't opt to read the kids' version because Nahum is usually not found in the kids' Bibles because the publishers don't want to publish such graphic language. These are God's words and he wants you and he wants me like he wanted the nation of Judah to understand the devastating effects of sin. The very detailed description that Nahum gives us is supposed to do three things. One, give hope to the covenant people of God that the the Lord will respond to the sins of the wicked. Supposed to give us hope. He's keeping track. Secondly, it's to cause us to worship that there is a God who forgives sinners. We're supposed to read Nahum 3 and say, That's me, but He's forgiven me. It's to cause us to worship. And thirdly, it's to put wind into our cells to fight sin every day with passion. And with his power. We're supposed to read this and say, this is what sin will do in my life. God, empower me by your spirit and the promises in your word to fight sin, to make war on sin in my life. Why? Because there are sewage lines in every human heart, in your heart and in my heart. Even though many of us here are redeemed and we are Christians, we still have what John Owen called indwelling sin. There's still sin coursing through our veins that must be put to death by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God. Everyone in this building this morning has sewage running through their hearts. It's called sin. And my little Piper, six months old, she is in the nursery has sewage running through her heart. And I ask you to pray for her and all the babies and kids here and serve in Awana and ask God to grant them repentance that they may experience eternal life. We'll get to this at the end of the sermon, but let's pause here and let's just remember that even though we have sewage running through our hearts, our Savior is greater than our sin. We don't want to get bogged down in the sewage lines. We don't want to get bogged down in the waste and feel like there is no hope. We'll come back to it at the end of the sermon. But let me give you a little bit of hope. Our Savior, even though our sin is great, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is greater than any sin. If you may not like the book of Nahum because it's graphic, if you think it's too graphic and shouldn't be preached in the pulpit, then take it up with God. This is his book. These are his words, not mine. I might tame it down a little bit. I might come to Nahum 3 and try to spill a little Clorox bleach on it. But this is God's word. He's doing it because he wants to grab our attention. Kind of like what Jesus did on The first day of his resurrection. Do you remember what happened? How Jesus appeared to the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. Their eyes were hindered from seeing who he was. They're telling him about all the events. How they had hoped in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would come save save Israel. And he died and was buried. And they're talking about that. 
And what does Luke say in Luke 24? Verse 25 through 27. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus spends the first day of his resurrection walking and teaching through all the prophets, including Nahum, explaining how they pointed to him. I picture the conversation with these two disciples going something like this. Jesus says, remember Nahum's prophecy? Two disciples, oh yes, wow, that is one graphic book. Book, all the blood and gore, it makes me uncomfortable. I don't like to talk about those things. Jesus might reply, then you don't ever study the book of Nahum or teach on it? Have you ever heard it read and taught in the synagogue? Maybe. Again, sir, it's just a little too gory for me. I don't like to hear preaching that focuses on sin and prostitution and excrement and blood and corpses. Maybe Jesus replied, you know Nahum is talking about the Messiah, yes? How he will come and wipe out his enemies, The gospel is gory and bloody. You know that, right? Maybe it didn't happen that way, but that's how I picture it. I see Jesus walking them through all of the Old Testament prophets, explaining why the prophets were so horrific with their writings. The prophets, like Nahum, must have been pretty important to Jesus if he spent the first day of his resurrection teaching an Old Testament history class. Nahum must have meant something to our Savior if he is raised from the dead and he says, I've got to teach people about the Old Testament prophets. And how do we view them? We also have Paul's words in Romans 15, 4, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Paul is saying that the bloody book of Nahum was written for our instruction. The bloody book of Nahum was written that we might endure. The bloody book of Nahum was written that we might find encouragement. And the bloody book of Nahum was written that we might have hope. That God will take care of his enemies one day. Something to think about Back to the city of Nineveh, Nahum's vivid description of the fall of Nineveh shows us that the punishment for Nineveh fit the crime. The bloodthirsty Ninevites would now get a taste of their own medicine. These people who love to capture you and chop off your hands and gouge out your eyes and cut off your tongue and cut off your ears and leave you for dead or cut your head off and hang it in a tree, now they're going to get a taste of their own medicine. Destruction was on its way to Nineveh. Why? Because there are sewage lines in every human heart. And there were sewage lines in Nineveh's heart. Look at verse 4. And all of this destruction for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. 
Nahum does not hold back in his description of Nineveh. He calls them out as prostitutes. I love what John Calvin said. It is necessary that those who are too self-indulgent and delicate should be roughly handled. Nahum is roughly handling Nineveh here. He will not coddle them. He tells it like it is. You are a lady of the red light district, Nineveh. You work the streets at night, luring nation and people away. He does not mince words. I have a feeling that the mayor of Nineveh might have had a problem with Nahum's chicken restaurant. Just a thought. Some of you will get that. Nahum is not afraid of calling Nineveh out. He minces no words. He does not soften the blow. He drags Nineveh by the scruff of her neck into the ring and into the cage and starts unloading punches upon the city, exposing the sewage system that ran through the city's hearts. When Nahum says that the city has functioned like a prostitute, he means it spiritually. The Hebrew word that Nahum uses, zanah, is often used in the Old Testament to refer to spiritual adultery or spiritual prostitution. In fact, it's used many times against God's people by saying, you've gone away like a prostitute to another lover. Nineveh played the role of a prostitute by turning away from the Lord. The city committed spiritual prostitution by worshiping other gods and betraying other nations with her charms. Nineveh's exposure once again proved that there are sewage lines in every human heart. But Nahum is not content to stop here. The politically incorrect exposure of Nineveh continues as the Holy Spirit, through the prophet Nahum, exposes Nineveh for who they really are, and exposes her heart. Now the Lord actually shows up in Nineveh's prophecy. As the Lord showed up personally throughout Nineveh to provide comfort for his people, now the Lord shows up personally once again to confront Nineveh. Look at verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Again, Nahum does not mince any words. I have a feeling that if Larry King were around in Nahum's day, Nahum definitely would have been interviewed on his show. He'd probably want to know, Who are you? Little Israelite prophet calling out the superpower of the day. Here are the five ways that the Lord will expose the gross depravity and the sewage system that ran through the hearts of the citizens of Nineveh. One, the Lord says he will expose their nakedness. He says, I will lift their skirts over their heads and expose them as they had exposed those people that they captured. They would capture people, strip their clothes off, and make them walk around. In the ancient Near East, they didn't value nudity like we do today. In fact, they were prudes in a good way. To be stripped naked before someone brought shame. You didn't want that. Our culture is completely opposite. We try to show as much flesh as we can. In the ancient Near East, to be exposed brought shame. And the Lord says, 
when the Medes and the Babylonians come, they're going to strip you naked and make you walk around. Secondly, the Lord says, I will expose their wickedness to the nations. Like a crooked politician who is caught red-handed, Nineveh is going to be on the cover of Time magazine with a tagline that would read, caught, exposed. All of her dirty secrets would be wide open for the world to read about. The third thing the Lord says he will do, he will pelt them with dung. That's the word detestable things here or filth. In fact, Malachi mentions it too in Malachi 2.3 that the Lord will smear dung over the priests who have turned away from him. Nineveh would be marked outwardly as they were in their hearts covered in feces and filth and excrement, they would be exposed for all people to see. Why does the Lord do this? Why throw filth and garbage and excrement and dung and feces at them and smear it all around? Because the Lord is exposing the filth that is in their hearts. The excrement that covered their bodies and the filth would be a sign and proof that a sewage system ran through their hearts. God would expose what was happening internally by covering them with it outwardly. The fourth thing the Lord said, he would mock them. As they mocked the people that they captured and tortured and paraded around, so too the Lord would mock them. The fifth thing, the Lord says he will make a spectacle of them. The Assyrian kings delighted in capturing people, ridiculing them, making a public spectacle of them. This is from Ashurbanipal's diary, speaking of another king, King Daite. This is what he did to this man that he caught. I put him into a kennel with jackals and dogs. I tied him up and made him guard the gate in Nineveh. Ridiculed this king. Put him in a cage with a bunch of dogs. Put a collar and a leash on him. And now the Lord says, this is what the Medes and the Babylonians are going to do to you. They're going to mock you and ridicule you because of what you have done to all the nations. No one would be there to comfort Nineveh. People would be shocked that the superpower of the day went down. It's kind of like when Saddam Hussein was captured. Remember, he's living in that spider hole, haggard and unkempt. He was a far cry from his palaces and his power. That would be true of Nineveh as well. Just as we watched in shock as Saddam Hussein was captured and exposed, so too the nations of the world would stand in awe as the mighty superpower of the day, Assyria and its capital city of Nineveh, would fall. No one would grieve for her. No one would step up to offer comfort. No one would feel sympathetic for this city. They were going down. Because of what was in their hearts. And Nahum wanted Judah, the people of God, to remember something too as he's preaching. He wants Judah to remember that there are sewage lines in every human heart. Remember, that's why Judah was a subject of Assyria. Because they made a treaty with Assyria. They turned away from the Lord and his protection over their life. The sewage system in Judah's heart, just like Israel, who was now at this point in captivity, Judah was left. Now Judah had let the sewage system in her heart back up until they were exposed by worshiping other gods. Judah had committed spiritual adultery by turning away from Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. But Nahum's prophecy came. 
to remind them that the Lord is good and that the Lord is loving and forgiving and that he would restore Judah in his time. Assyria and Nineveh would go down because of the sewage system in their hearts and Judah would be restored in spite of the fact that they had sewage systems running through their hearts. This is the gospel. We all have a sewage system running through our hearts, but God did something to remedy it. He sent his son to do what we could never do, and that is to live a perfect life, to never sin, to always obey God's commandments. We can never do that. Because of the sewage that's in our heart. It's producing more sewage by the way that we live. Jesus did not have a sewage system in his heart. He never sinned. He was perfect. And then he went to the cross where he was stripped naked. Where he was crucified in shame for all to see. And then God pelted his son with the filth and the waste, and the garbage, and the sewage, and the excrement, and the dung, and the feces of our sin. And then he poured his wrath out upon his son for all of our sewage. And the gospel is that when you confess that and say, I do have a sewage line running through my heart. I've offended a holy God. I've lived for myself. When you say, forgive me, God, I believe that you poured your wrath out on Jesus because of my sewage. When you believe that, you're born again. When you believe that, the great exchange takes place where the imputed alien righteousness of Jesus goes to you and all of your filth and sewage goes to him. That's why the word gospel means good news because it's good news. You've heard me say it before. It's too good to be true. I don't believe it, but I believe it. Will you turn from the sewage of sin and trust in Jesus? You cannot be good enough. Paul actually said this in Philippians 3. That his man-made righteousness, all of his quote-unquote goodness, he said, was filth. He said it was dung. It was excrement. It could never make him right with God. He needed the alien, foreign righteousness of Jesus Christ to be credited to him. And he needed his filth and squalor to be brought over to Jesus. Where then God pours his wrath out upon that filth of Paul's on Jesus. That God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. So if you've never done that, today is the day. But if you're a Christian, even though you have a sewage system running through your heart, God has canceled the condemning power of sin and the controlling power of sin. We are not under the law. We are under grace now. We've been enabled by the Spirit of God to fight sin. We come to the gospel and get cleansed from the sewage that is in our life. And we come to the gospel to get power to fight sin. Those desires that bubble up in the sewage of our hearts. And we do that not in our own strength. We do that not by being told it's wrong. We do that by looking at Jesus and being mesmerized by him. That all that he did for us, we do that. We fight sin by finding pleasure in God. 
Robert Murray Machane, I quoted earlier, said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Quoting Jeremiah 17, 9. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace in all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Hear that, Christian? When God looks at you, he doesn't see the sewage system anymore. He sees the perfect life of his son. So Christian, hate your sin, repent, but live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. So Christian, when you do sin and you will sin and you'll sin probably before you leave this building. When you do sin and you know that and the Spirit convicts you, you repent. You take that one look at yourself and then you take 10 looks at Jesus Christ. And you keep turning to him and say, I'm covered in his righteousness. I'm blameless in his. So when you put the kids to bed and you lose it because you lose it sometimes, right? Right? You can confess that. You've already been exposed through the gospel. No need to hide. And you lose it with your kids. Then you can come back to God and say, God, forgive me. And then you immediately turn to Jesus and you take 10 looks at him and his imputed righteousness in you. And when you go to work and you gossip and slander your boss and then the Spirit convicts you and you're like, why did I say that? You repent and then you take 10 looks at Jesus Christ. Whatever it is, the sin that you struggle with, you confess it, you repent, and then you turn your gaze upon Jesus. That's how you fight sin, by saying, he is better. And when Satan comes and says, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, how could you say that, how could you do that, God doesn't love you, you take ten looks at Jesus, and you bask in the beams of his love. You repose in his almighty arms and say, it's all free because of Jesus. There are sewage lines in every human heart. Yes, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, but we don't linger there. We move, we face that fact, and then we move from that. For everyone, look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. We must let our soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so that there is no more room for the sewage. You do that with the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words. So shocking to some of us. It's a messy chapter to picture the filth and the excrement and the sewage. Oh, but God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God, that because of him 
in the gospel message, we confess our sins and you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May we be captivated and mesmerized and flabbergasted at your mercy and your grace evidenced in the life, death, and resurrection of your son. May we bask in the beams of your love. May we repose in your almighty arms. May we be captivated once again by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.